The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I see him down the Dunkirk. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Stanislav Vizotsky. Stas is an associate professor in criminology at the University of Fraser Valley in British Columbia, Canada. He is the author of the book American Antifa, The Tactics, Culture and Practice of Militant Antifascism, which came out with Routledge earlier this year. His current research is focused on analyzing the dynamics between protesters, counter-protesters, and police at fascist rallies, as well as looking at the dynamics of targeted harassment of anti-fascist by supremacist activists. Welcome to the podcast, Stas. Thank you for having me. So we start with the question, what was the first sports team you ever supported? I spent a large part of my life not being much of a sports fan, and the first sports team that I supported was the Boston Red Sox when I was in graduate school. Second, what is your favorite political song? My favorite political song is the Song of the Mother in Debt by Chumbawamba. And finally, what is your favorite political book? This was a hard one. I'm going to go with, it's kind of cheesy and a little too on point, but V for Vendetta. So let's start easy or maybe not. What is Antifa? Okay, so Antifa is kind of a contraction of anti-fascist or anti-fascism. It's used as a shorthand to refer to anti-fascist activism. Now, that's a much broader and bigger topic because anti-fascism is a movement that is judging by its name, in opposition to fascism. And for a scholar such as myself, and, and certainly for a lot of anti-fascist activists, they use a relatively broad definition of fascism. I will narrow it down just a little bit to make it easy, but for many activists, fascism is an ideology that believes in the inherent difference between people, biological and social, and that there is a hierarchy of people that is enforced through violence and use of force. And so anti-fascists are opposed to that ideology and ultimately to the movements that are propagating that ideology. There is a whole debate about whether Antifa exists. Some talk about it, particularly on the right, as if Antifa is a strictly organized group whereas many people on the left claim that there is no organization at all. In your book, you distinguish between an informal and a formal Antifa and argue that these two are connected. Can you explain that? Yeah, certainly. So I'll start by talking about informal anti-fascism. And that is the kind of activism that occurs in what people like Mark Bray and Shane Burley refer to as everyday anti-fascism. So these are things that people do to oppose fascist activity and mobilizations as part of the course of their everyday activities and their everyday life. So this would be people who relatively spontaneously engage in oppositional action in terms of fascism. So these are people who might see someone who publicly is displaying fascist symbols, and they will act 
on that and respond to that, uh, sometimes with words, uh, other times with more forceful types of action. And this is the informal. It's relatively unorganized. It doesn't have any sort of coordination and it is definitely spontaneous. And now that can be juxtaposed against the formal form of anti-fascism. And that is the form that's more closely associated with what people label Antifa. And that kind of activism occurs among people in groups. And those groups are generally built on an affinity group model. And the notion of an affinity group is that you have generally small group of activists who come together because they have an ideological and tactical unity. So they have a certain coherence and agreement on their belief system and on how they wish to act. And so in terms of anti-fascism, these are groups of people who come together to engage in more sustained and long-term projects that are designed to formally oppose the organized work of organized supremacist or fascist groups. So that's the two forms. And the dynamic between them is that they're simultaneously different in the sense that there are a lot of people who will engage in informal anti-fascism, but there are a relatively smaller number of people who do the formal work. However, in my book, I note that there are certainly people who are involved in formal anti-fascism who will also engage in many of the activities of informal anti-fascism because they may have the opportunity essentially, to confront fascists as part of the course of their everyday lives. And in many cases, they have greater opportunities because of the kinds of cultural spheres that they find themselves in and the lifestyles that they lead. They're overlapping in many respects with the recruitment and everyday activities of fascists. And so you're right that 2017 was the year of Antifa. But Antifa has a much longer history, both in the U.S. and beyond. Could you sketch that shortly? Yeah, certainly. And I write that more as a declaration of just how much the media covered and sort of discovered Antifa in 2017. But there's definitely a long history of anti-fascism. And obviously, there is the anti-fascism that occurred in primarily Europe, but also really in the United States in the interwar period between World War I and World War II, where the initial formal fascist movements organized and mobilized. And so in response to that mobilization and organization, a number of different anti-fascist groups and certainly inspired individuals mobilized primarily because they were the political opponents of fascist movements. So this was a very leftist movement in the interwar period organized by socialists, communists, and anarchists, and also with allied actors who were the targeted groups of fascist violence. So certainly in Europe, uh, Jewish communities were mobilizing in their anti-fascist activism. In the United States, you also similarly see the Jewish community mobilize. African-American community mobilizing. So you have this kind of history and tradition of anti-fascism in the United States. And in the post-war period, you have resurgent elements of fascism, both in Europe and the U.S. And, and once 
again, you see these similar kinds of alliances mobilizing to oppose those fascist mobilizations. So throughout the 50s and into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, a variety of activists from the left were coming out whenever there were public demonstrations by overt supremacists in the U.S., One of the groups that I found fascinating that you talk about in your book is the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee. Can you tell us a little bit about them and what role they play in the history of Antifa in the U.S.? Yeah, so the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, in many respects, represents the transition point from the anti-fascist activism that was part of the new left of the 1960s and into the 1970s, and the more contemporary, frequently subcultural activism of the anti-fascist movement that we have today. And the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee was organized by Marxist activists who had come out of the experiences of organizing in the 1970s and viewed the activities of the Klan and other overt white supremacist groups as fundamentally dangerous to their organizing efforts. So they took a very militant position in opposing Klan mobilizations and other white supremacist mobilizations and would confront fascist groups with physical force frequently. And what made them the transition point is that in addition to engaging in that kind of militant activism, they also very actively engaged with the punk subculture that at the time was both a space of fascist recruitment and also a space of anti-fascist activism in the formal and informal senses. And so it was not uncommon for them to advertise in punk zines and to go to punk shows and produce literature and distribute flyers and things like that in that subculture. So they're sort of the transition organization that ultimately leads to anti-racist action in the late 80s, 1990s, and, and functionally to this day. That actually is a good segue. Is there a difference between anti-racism and anti-fascism? Because in the movement itself, you have anti-fascist action, which was pretty much the defining group or at least name in Europe. Is there a difference or are they used as synonyms? Are these the same kind of movement? There is a difference and there is a certain amount of similarity. So in terms of the history of naming, the founders of anti-racist action modeled their organizing on anti-fascist action in Europe. And given the context and understanding of fascism in the United States popular culture in the 1980s, they felt that using the term fascist would be something that most people wouldn't understand because the term had been so diluted at that point that for most Americans, it just meant a kind of petty authoritarianism. And they felt that the most appropriate way to convey their ideological position and their stance was to use the term anti-racist action rather than anti-fascist action. Some of this was also strategic in that the primary form that fascist movements take in the United States is that of white supremacist and therefore overtly racist social movements. So in that sense, they are an anti-racist movement and anti-fascist movements are anti-racist by their very essence. However, 
as anti-racist action as an organization developed and as they engaged primarily in discourse with other types of anti-racist activists and, and certainly a broader context and literature on racism as a systemic and structural force, they began to understand that what they were doing was not necessarily confronting racism in that structural and systemic way. And so this is part of the nominal shift as well when we look at the way in which groups in the United States, the formal groups, moved away from using the anti-racist name to increasingly using the anti-fascist name in the last couple of decades was because of that understanding of their activism as being a counter-movement activism and not necessarily one that's focused on those structural systemic. I will also say, just as a quick little caveat, that in developing that understanding of structural and systemic racism, a number of people involved in anti-racist action began to try to engage with some of those structural and systemic racist practices, particularly around police violence against people of color and were very influential and, and active in the cop watch movement of the 1980s and 1990s. So this was one of the ways in which they tried to broaden their activism to move right. away from simply chasing supremacist groups. Right. As you said, Antifa is anti-fascist, but are they also pro-something? Certainly. People come to the anti-fascist movement because they're engaging in social justice activism of another kind. So they're frequently pro-egalitarianism, they are pro-social justice, they're pro-economic justice, they're pro-racial and ethnic gender and sexual orientation equality, they are pro-community. So anti-fascists are interested in building a large, diverse, and open community of people where everyone is treated with equality. So anti-fascism is, in many respects, as much a cultural movement as it is a protest movement. In the European context, a lot of the radical anti-fascist movement came out of the squatter movement, particularly in Germany, but also in the Netherlands. And so it came out of a subcultural movement that was largely anarchist. Do you have the same kind of roots here or are they more diverse in the U.S.? They're a little bit more diverse, and certainly in the contemporary context, the anti-fascist movement is very influenced by anarchist and anti-authoritarian politics, which ultimately are about trying to build a more egalitarian and just society. However, the U.S., because of its history of social inequality and social justice movements, also has a diverse kind of base in terms of its anti-fascism. And so you do see a certain segment of the anti-fascist movement coming out of racial justice movements and economic equality movements. So how big is Antifa in the U.S. and where are its strongholds? It's hard to gauge in large part because, as I said, that dynamic of informal anti-fascism. So there are mm -hmm. a lot of people who might be anti-fascist who aren't necessarily in a formal group of one sort or another. But also a lot of the formal anti-fascist work, because it occurs in affinity groups, has varying degrees of public face in terms of what they're doing. So there are certainly anti-fascist affinity groups that are engaging in relatively secretive work that is mostly around protecting their identities. And then there are the more public groups. 
I don't know that stronghold would be the word, but I would say there are certainly places where there have been sustained anti-fascist activist groups in the United States. The longest running is in Portland, it's Rose City Antifa. And then there are very sustained active groups in New York, in Philadelphia, in places like Asheville, the Bay Area. They're, Minneapolis. Yeah, Minneapolis, certainly the, the founding home of uh, anti-racist action. Antifa kind of is everywhere. That will terrify the right. <laughs> One of my first personal experience with Antifa was in the Netherlands when I was in a train to Rotterdam to observe a far-right meeting. And there was a group of young people, black clad, who came into the train And it took me, a fairly seasoned observer of radical politics, quite a while to distinguish whether these were fascist or anti-fascist, because they looked roughly the same in terms of their clothing, including their Dr. Martin shoes and even bombers. And they were also predominantly younger, male, white. I only saw the distinction because of the patches that they were wearing. The U.S. Antifa, do they have a specific demographic profile? To some extent, yes, although it varies because of the regional diversity and the backgrounds of the people involved in formal anti-fascist activism. I would say broadly, to your point about the similar kind of appearance and, and the similarities in terms of subcultural style, this is one of the key dynamics that I talk about in my book. And one of the reasons I talk about anti-fascism as a kind of cultural phenomenon and cultural movement is that it's about a contest and a contention over subculture and the ideological definitions of subculture, what it means to be part of that subculture and what it means to be an authentic participant in that subculture. And so you do get quite a few people who are coming from a subcultural background because for them, the threat of fascism is much more immediate than someone who may not be as involved in that subcultural sphere, uh, for whom that might be a little bit more uh, at a distance in terms right. of the, the way in which they're represented. However, having said that, even those subcultural dynamics may vary regionally so that in Portland, it's a majority white city, it's going to be a fairly white movement. Whereas in places like Chicago or Southern California, you have a greater involvement of people of color, certainly a greater involvement of Latinx activists. Uh, there are very strong Latinx subcultural scenes in those places. Mm -hmm. uh, and so anti-fascism looks like that as well. And certainly you have people of color involved in militant anti-fascism. In my ethnographic work with anti-fascist movements, there are a lot of people who are identified as queer, identified as gender nonconforming, gender queer. So while it may you know, sort of present as whiteness and even as hegemonic whiteness, it still are people who are being targeted for fascist violence. So I guess this is partly what you were pointing at before, but you're right. Antifa activism may be understood as social movement, subculture, and force of protection. But perhaps you can explain that a little bit more. This statement is about both the unique kinds of aspects of 
what Antifa activism entails, and also an attempt to make links between those unique aspects. So in its most broadest conception, anti-fascist activism is a form of social movement activity, a form of what's known as counter-movement activity. So this is a social movement that is organized almost exclusively in opposition to the fascist movement, as I talked about earlier. Mm It's unique in that sense because many of what scholars identify as counter-movements or opposing movements are frequently making social movement moves and adjusting to their political opponents, whereas anti-fascism is uniquely designed to oppose the Mobilization One movement. And if we go back to that question about what anti-fascists stand for, what they stand for frequently is operationalized in other kinds of social movement activism. So in that respect, Antifa is a very unique and interesting kind of social movement to look at. But because of the links that it has to these distinct subcultures, anti-fascism also operates as a kind of cultural phenomenon and has this very complex cultural form to it that ranges from that presentation that you were talking about, the sort of patches and t-shirts and things that people wear, to music and and certainly the strain of anti-fascism in punk subculture. But Beyond that, it has moved to construct its own kind of subculture in many respects, so that as one becomes involved in anti-fascist activism, one almost becomes involved in a kind of anti-fascist subculture that has its own cultural forms. There are anti-fascist art shows and movie nights and DJ nights, and one can build an entire social world around anti-fascism in terms of culture. And then that last aspect of protection has to do with the way in which anti-fascists perform a distinct function, frequently in those subcultural contexts and in those subcultural spaces where there is an immediate need frequently to eject and sometimes defend subcultures and subcultural spaces from fascists, and not simply because of their presence or or that notion of ideological authenticity, but because the fascists represent an actual violent threat It's not uncommon for fascists to attend cultural and subcultural events looking to start violence or to engage in violence. And so for anti-fascists, it is an immediate response, and in particular an immediate response because they are at times either ideologically opposed to or for practical reasons can't involve the police. You can't call the police if you have an underground basement musical event because the police are going to show up, shut it down. You can't call the police if you feel that the police are going to judge you as equally vilified as the fascists who are representing that threat. And frequently police don't make that kind of distinction. So they they see these sort of rival gang squabbles. So for anti-fascists, it becomes practical to engage in these forms of activism because they feel that they are the only ones who are able and capable of providing an immediate form of defense. Speaking about defense as well as of violence, having done field work on far-right organizations, I remember I was once at a meeting of the German People's Union, which is the Defoe in Germany in Passau, a few thousand, particularly old people, and they were cornered off by hundreds of policemen, but I was on the inside. And that group was being pelted with stones by Antifa who were on the outside. 
what is the position of particularly formal Antifa activists on violence? Like, what do they consider violence and when do they consider it to be legitimate? There is an understanding among anti-fascists that even that kind of activity, though it's more aggressive, is viewed by them as defensive because they see the presence and the mobilization of fascist groups as being a threat of violence and a threat against them. However, the logic of these kinds of activities and this kind of use of force and use of violence is a part of the counter-movement dynamic. And it's something that's been identified as increasing the costs of participation. And the idea is that if you meet fascists with force, sometimes greater force than that which they bring, then it creates a dynamic where they have to consider the costs of engaging in their activism and the physical cost at times, but also sometimes simply the personal cost. This is a relatively rare occurrence in when it comes to the overall repertoire of anti-fascism. Much of raising the costs of participation for anti-fascist activists is about most mobilizing public shame and stigma. So there's a lot more of the activities that people now refer to as doxing than there is Mm -hmm. of physical violence. But when that does occur, it is generally, at least from the anti-fascist perspective, about forcing a demobilization of fascists, forcing them to have to withdraw from their public event, from a venue, from wherever. So that's the logic of anti-fascist activists here. And so some of the literature writes that that creates a spiral of violence because at the same time, you now have anti-Antifa, mm-hmm. right? Which makes largely the same argument that they now come out to places like Portland to clear it from anti-fascist. And this leads to a debate that some people claim that Antifa has played a major role in the demise of the so-called alt-right and particularly point to people like Richard Spencer and other people. And I have to admit that I'm part of that have said that Antifa provides ammunition for people like Trump to garner support and push through more repressive policies. Where do you stand on this? Does Antifa play a major role in defeating fascism? Well, it would seem that they do, or at least they play some role, if not a major role. There is the concession in terms of people like Spencer, as you mentioned, and certainly that is a really great example of raising the costs because it literally raised the costs. He couldn't do his college tours because he couldn't afford to pay for his security. And certainly historically, we have people like Nigel Copsey, who's pointed out that militant anti-fascism in the UK was instrumental in demobilizing fascist movements, beginning with Oswald Mosley and really to the present day. So there is some evidence that militant anti-fascism does work in terms of demobilization. I would say that whether it's the anti-Antifa position or the position of certainly much of the right in the United States, that's found a boogeyman in terms of anti-fascism, that Antifa makes a convenient target for an ideological position that's already existing within these tendencies. So for example, if we think about anti-Antifa, a lot of this, besides the double negative, so once you eliminate the anti-anti, it Mm -hmm. it gets us at the core (laughs) of what that means. So we're talking here about a movement that is already built on opposition to the left. And 
frequently violent opposition to the left. So anti-Antifa is just a rebranding of a already held ideological position. So finally, what is the most important misperception about Antifa in the U.S.? Probably the most important misperception about Antifa in the U.S. is that Antifa is out to destroy the very essence of people's lives in the United States. There is this kind of construction that Antifa activism is a boogeyman that is out to completely undo the fabric of U.S. society. And as far as anti-fascist activists are concerned, their single purpose is to stop a social movement that is built on creating a society of inequality between people that is reinforced and enforced through violence. That is their goal. That's what they want to do. They are not acting in order to destroy America as we know it. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Stas. Yeah, thank you for having me. You can follow Stas on Twitter at, at Professor underscore Stas, S-T-A-S. And his book, American Antifa, The Tactics, Culture and Practice of Militant Anti-Fascism, is now out with Routledge, including in a decently affordable paperback. So check that out too. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm sitting down at Dunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.